Good morning. What would it be like if you sat on my lap and I read you a story? Well, it sounds something like that. Uh, that book was given to me um, a couple months ago, and apparently all the rest of you knew about it, and I didn't. And so when I read that book, I ended up reading it to my daughter, and I did all the voices, and, um, and, and, and I thought, man, this is powerful. In the year of identity, boy, can we all just for a moment become little kids in the sight of God and let him remind us that what he thinks of us is more important than what other people think. I, I just want to remind you that I did not do the girl voice. <laughs> All right? That was done by Kirsty Marciano, who is our video director that not only filmed that, but Brian Lisk, our, our sound producer, produced that entire video. Can we just thank them? <laughs> they did an incredible job. And you're probably wondering, why are you in a tie? Yes, I am in a tie. <laughs> Just letting you know I didn't throw them away, all right? So uh, I am in a tie in honor of our baby dedication service that we have later today. I understand that everyone that gets their baby dedicated not only wants a touch from the Lord, but wants a good photo opportunity. So I wore a tie for you, all right? Why don't we go ahead and take out our Bibles? Let us begin today. You have an encouraging message before you. We are in part four of our Identity in Crisis series through the book of Judges, and we're in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. I entitled this morning's message, The Fear Factor, and, and I just want to draw your attention to the fill-in-the-blank that is on the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. Fear plays a massive role in our lives, and I know that... Fear in general has a negative connotation to it, and I think that is appropriate, uh, and it's how we're going to be talking about it a lot today, but understand that fear is actually a neutral, that, that fear can be positive or negative, and, and the way that it's positive is when it's a motivator towards health, right? So if you go out in the street and you're not paying attention, and a truck comes barreling down on you, you're supposed to get afraid, that is the big motivator for you to get out of the road and not get hit by the truck. So, so fear is not necessarily a negative. Where it becomes a negative is when it is utilized as a manipulator. A motivator versus a manipulator is all the difference in the world. When it begins to make you decide wrong things off wrong information, that's when fear is a problem. And I'm afraid that that's how fear is operating in most of our lives. Like the book that we just read, You Are Special by Max Lucado. Most of us don't fear for our physical lives. We're just too afraid of what other people think. When that fear begins to shape us and we can no longer follow through on what God wants because we're more afraid of their thoughts than his thoughts, something has gone wrong. When fear begins to change how we operate in life and and you all know every time we talk about fear i know what i'm talking about yeah i wrote a book on the subject <laughs> panic disorder since six years old i know what fear is however i determined early on 
that I was not going to allow fear to dictate my decisions. The fill in the blank is that. Fear must not dictate our decisions. Now, does my fear issues make things miserable? Yeah, it does. But what I refuse to do is allow it to shape my entire life. I'm not going to allow it to define me. I'm not going to allow it to stop me from doing what God has called me to do. Recently, a a ministry asked me to do something that I wasn't comfortable with, just out of different fear triggers. And for a long time, I kept asking the Lord, you know, I don't have to do this, right? And eventually the Lord's like, well, actually you do. And so I said, yes. Now, does that mean I'm comfortable with it? No. Part of courage is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Because what is more important to me is what is God saying and what am I going to do about it? Not so much is my fear going to tell me my next move. We got to talk a lot about fear because we're going to be talking about one of the most fearful men in the Bible who becomes one of the most mighty warriors of all time and his name is Gideon. Would you, if you have not already, turn with me to Judges chapter 6 verse 1. His story covers more than any other judge in the entire book. His story covers chapters 6, 7, and 8. So I'm going to be hitting some key points and paraphrasing the rest so we can move through it in our short amount of time. So let's pick it up here. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel, it said, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Big shock there, right? You know that's the pattern that... God obviously has things go well for them. They start doing their own thing. They get in trouble. God has to correct them. And then he saves them. And then, you know, that whole pattern. And the Lord gave them into the hand of a nation called Midian for seven years. Seven years is the year of, is the number of fullness. So he's saying, listen, guys, you're way out of line in what I asked you to do. You have broken my covenant. You have not listened to me. You have disobeyed me. Therefore, we're going to need to walk through a lesson and we're going to walk through the lesson in the fullness of time. And the way that it worked, the Bible says, is that Israel was reliant on their agriculture and their herds, but every year at harvest time, a bunch of other nations would gather together, come in, and they would run raids. They would steal all of their harvest. And if you know anything about agriculture, you know you can't rush that stuff. So all of a sudden, they have to wait for a whole nother cycle. Meanwhile, they don't have enough food. It was demoralizing. They would steal their herds and their flocks and they would take everything away from them. And they did it for seven years in a row. At that point, you're just in absolute despair. And that's where we see it in verse six. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Let me ask you this. How many of you are in a situation right now Because of bad decisions, it's actually consequence. And God is not just fixing it for you. He's making you walk it out. I mean, it'd be super cool if God would do some miraculous thing and then ta-da, everything's great. But he's not doing that. He's making you walk it every day. And you would say, well, Lord, that seems so mean of you. When you have the ability to rescue me instantaneously, why wouldn't you? And I believe that it is because of his love. I believe his love is to train us out of it 
so that number one, it loses its allure. And number two, you're not as weak as you were when you first walked into it. So some of us are having to mature our way out of our bad choices. And it's a slow process. Pick it up in verse eight. God wanted him to know why things were going the way they were. So he said this. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and he said to them, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. In other words, I'm a good guy. I've been your rescuer all the time. What we do not have here, everyone, is a capability problem. I know how to rescue. I know what I'm doing. And nobody stands against me. And I said to you, verse 10, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now, what did he tell him? Don't fear the gods of the people that you are taking over. What what in the world does that mean? Y'all have heard the phrase fear of God, yeah? Fear of God, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that's a good thing. But what does it mean? Normally, we translate it as respect, yeah? That you would respect God enough. So why would you use the word fear in it? It's because it says you're more concerned, you're more worried about the consequences of violating God so it is a motivator towards good healing and health. All right. So what did he just tell them? I don't want you fearing their gods. I don't want you respecting their gods. I don't want you thinking their gods are a big deal. I don't want you adjusting your life based on their gods and their concepts of reality. So that brings up a question that becomes very personal for all of us. When you fear something too much, you worship it. So what are you worshiping today? Let me, let me give you an example. If I was to tell you this, you know, everyone, every day I wake up thinking of God. Every night I go to bed, I'm thinking about God. Throughout the day, I'm thinking about God. As a matter of fact, there are periods in my day when I think about nothing but God. Would you not say, oh, Lance, what a holy man. What a worshiper of God. Now just use that word God and flip it with fear. In the morning, I'm afraid. When I go to bed, I'm afraid. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty much nervous throughout the day. And there are certain periods of the day that I don't, can't even think of anything else because I'm just afraid. All right. Who's worshiping what? For some of us, fear has taken way too much territory. For some of us, fear is dominating. And we have bowed down to it, and it is now in charge. We are not, and that is unacceptable. Because as much as it seems natural to us, it is inappropriate in light of reality. So whose voice are we listening to? Who do we fear more, God or fear? Hmm. Because if we truly fear God, then the enemy should be afraid, not us. Right? All right, let's keep moving. Pick it up in verse 11. 
Now the angel of the Lord came. Now I'm going to suggest to you that that is Jesus before the manger, the second person of the Trinity. We can have a disagreement about that later, but I have the microphone, so that's what we're going to do. Now the angel of the Lord came, God showed up, rolled into town, and sat under a tree which belonged to a guy named Joash. And he did this while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Let's pause right there. What are you doing trying to work with wheat in a wine press? It's called a wine press because it makes wine. All right, so what are you doing? What is a wine press? Well, it has little rock walls around it. It's kind of like a vat um, where you would put all the grapes, pour huge amounts of grapes in there, and then you'd smash them all down and it would drain out the, the juice, the grape juice out the side. So why is he crushing wheat, which you would normally do in a big open area? Why is he doing that in here? Well, because he's scared. Because the bad guys always take anything good. And so he has a bunch of wheat that he's preparing. So the bad guys are going to run in. They're just watching through binoculars, right? And he's like, man, I got to hide it in this thing. Oh, look at me. I'm not doing anything, right? And then he would gather his wheat and be able to eat it at home. So right off the bat, we meet a guy who is scared. Now you would say he's rightfully scared. This is a pretty nasty time to live and bad guys will kill you. So, all right, he's nervous, but what's intriguing is look at God's introduction to him. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, is God just messing with him? Is God just going, what's up, big dog hiding in the little area here? You wimp, what is wrong with you? I mean, is that really what God's doing? I don't think so. I think this is about identity. I think that God is looking at him and saying, I know the end of the story and it's pretty awesome. You know what you're becoming, my friend? A mighty man of valor. You don't see it yet. I see it. I live looking at you through the eyes of potential. I know what I will make you. Just because you don't see it yet doesn't mean it's not a fact. Because I began a good work in you. And I will be faithful to complete it. I need you to understand that when God looks at you, he looks at what he's making in you. We always think that God only looks at what is bad about us. Oh, he's got to see all my flaws and he's got to see all this and everything. Is that how moms look at their little kids? Man, every new mom I've ever met, their child is a prodigy. My child is so smart. No, like not like those other dumb kids, like seriously smart. Are they all a prodigy or is mom kind of looking at potential? The the bottom line is, is that when God speaks to us, a lot of times you'll hear someone pray over you and they'll talk about things, you know, go, well, they clearly don't know me. Or maybe they're listening to the Holy Spirit and they're breathing life over you and they're saying, you are a mighty warrior. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of all those websites and everything that talk about if you name your child this, this is what it means. Because if they're all different, are any of them accurate, right? But I remember growing up, and as I told you, I grew up as a very fearful young kid. And on my wall, my my dad had bought me a plaque. Everybody remember what a plaque is? (laughs) A large block of wood with something on it, right? Sounds so archaic. And on that, it said my name, Lance, and it said God's warrior. 
it hung right by as I would walk outside my door. Now, whether or not that's at all what it meant, that was projecting out a potential of what God was building in me. In the moment, I was a scared kid. Today, I am a warrior. God knew. My parents could see it. I could not. I want you to understand that God sees through your circumstances, right? All right, let's keep moving. And Gideon said to him, please, sir. In other words, how about you riddle me this, buddy? As you came, he still doesn't know who this guy is. He doesn't know it's God. Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Well, that's a legit question. I mean, isn't that a whole thing? If there's a God, why is there so much suffering? I mean, isn't that a question I get a billion times a year? If God is really here, how come all this stuff has happened to us? Either God's gone or God can't handle it. Let me explain something to you. God's nearness does not mean your ease. And this is a critical, critical piece to it. Because for a lot of us, this is our issue in Christianity. Some of us went through trauma as children. And I'm not going to make light of that. That is absolutely serious. Some of us have a trauma and the number one block in our Christianity is where were you, God? Where were you? Why did you allow that to happen? So we assume either he's powerless or he wasn't there. I need to suggest to you he was there. Now we got to wrap our minds around that because we assume that if he's there, he would make everything right. And that is not true. He knows what he's doing. He has a higher purpose. And we need to make sure that our Christianity does not rest on what God does for us, but who he is. Because if at that moment we say, well, if you were there, then I don't want to worship you. Then we have a non-starter. Because I'll tell you right now, God was there. Was God okay with it? No. Was it evil? Yes. Did God say anything other than that? No. It's evil. We're going to call it what it is. Will God leave it as that? No, he will not. But it's wrong. But God was there. He then brings up the second question, which is legitimate. Where are all the wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? Man, where is his miracles? Everybody else keeps talking about it. Where are the miracles in my life, man? For seven years, we get ripped off. Where's the power? When we were walking through as a church and we continue to walk through trying to understand the supernatural, that is how I I gathered all my material, all my resources, all my research, all my questions, I gathered into a document and it's called, Where's the Power? That's a whole nother message, but I gotta tell you this. Is the power in here? Are the miracles stopped because God isn't able or the miracles stopped because something was going on with the people? I'll just let that one sit in the air for a while. All right. He goes to the third one. But now he said, the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Is that correct? No, only half that statement is correct. He did hand them over into the hand of Midian. He did not forsake them because what's the irony? God is nowhere to be found. And he's talking to him. God's like, hello, right here. So, no, I didn't go anywhere. You keep saying, I've forsaken you. I didn't forsake you. I'm standing right here. 
I came to visit you at your house. So no, I'm not gone. Well, if you were here, you'd fix it. Would I really? I got something bigger going on. What I think is, is fascinating to me is that when Jesus in the New Testament gave him the great commission and walked away, what did he say? I will not forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth, right? Even to the end of the age. In other words, Jesus was saying, listen, what you never have to worry about is that I am gone. I'm never gone. I'm always there with you. I like this one right here. So Gideon uh, argues about all the, why did all this happen? Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, pause, what? who was the Lord looking at? <laughs> right? The Lord's like, oh, I'm sorry. Are you still talking? <laughs> like uh, there was a squirrel over there and I was just, I was watching it. The Lord turns and he, oh, hey, glad you're still here. Here's what God says, go in this might of yours, meaning go do what you can do and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? How about you fix a problem, buddy? What do you mean me fix the problem? I don't, I don't have those kind of resources. Go in the might that you do have, save Israel from the hand of Midian because I'm sending you. And Gideon said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? What did he just miss? The God part. Well, I don't know. There's no way I can do that, God. Well, I didn't say you were going to do it alone. I said I was going to go with you. Well, yeah, but how can I say? Stop talking about you. This isn't about you. You're a jar of clay. I'm filling you up. What the contents are way more important than the external stuff. I can do extraordinary things. Quit looking at you. You're not the big person at the table. I am. So it's not really about your capability. It's about mine. But notice he still makes excuses. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said, but I will be with you. I don't care who you are. And you will strike the Midianites as one man. Here's the thing. And I need us to lock this into our theology. Because remember, we do not allow our circumstances to dictate our theology. Here's the theology that we need to lock down. God only uses broken people. God only uses weak people. God only uses forgotten people. Why? Because there's glory that he can get there. God only has ever used regular human beings. You keep thinking that God uses other people because they're extraordinary. He does not. He makes them extraordinary. Amen? Because all the time we keep saying, but God, you can't use me because whatever comes out of your mouth next isn't right. He's only used people that lack. So he's good with it. And he said to him, verse 17, now Gideon has had this dialogue with God. If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Okay, he's talking to him. Show me a sign that, it, that, that you and I are talking right now. Uh, besides me talking to you. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Give me something legit. <laughs> All right. Okay, so uh, once again, I want to keep reiterating this. Supernatural stuff is weird. 
And so it's not as clean just because you see it in the Bible where it's kind of like, oh, and then he was talking to God. That must have been easy. He's still asking for a sign. Every time God moves, every time there's something miraculous, there's always the possibility of doubt. There's always the possibility of I didn't see it right. There's always a possibility I missed something. That's just how miraculous works. So if you're like, well, until it's a lock, I'm never going to believe you are going to be a non-believer. Just letting you know right now, because there's always a possibility. The Bible says that even after the disciples were involved in the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000, they still didn't understand it was a miracle. How's that possible? That's a whole extra level of ignorance, right? And they didn't get it because you're always assuming that if anything happens that's legit supernatural, it's gonna be obvious and clear, and then you're gonna go run in the lab and you're gonna write it down. That's not how it works. So he said, all right, so I, I, need, I need a sign. I gotta make sure that you're legitimate, verse 18. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present, and I set it before you. And so God said, fine, I'll stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Pause. That took an hour. How awkward is this? The Lord's like, all right, I'll wait here. And the whole time he's in there, he's like turning on preheat 450. And then he's going over here and he's trying to catch the goat outside because the goat's alive running around. He grabs the goat, has to cook the goat. He's doing this whole thing where he's like, uh-huh, and he's stirring the flour. He makes enough food for an army. One person doesn't eat an entire goat. And so he comes out with, he's like, whoa, with all these dishes, right? And he's bringing this whole thing out to God, which the whole time, everything's quiet while God's just checking his watch. Everyone's walking by on the road and they're like, hey, what's up? He's like, hey, they're like, like, what are you doing? I'm waiting for my meal. Right? He's like, I wasn't even hungry, whatever. And the angel, verse 20, of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, pour broth over them. And you go, why is he doing that? Because he just turned a normal rock into an altar. That is an offering. And now he's pouring out the other offering over the top of it. And he did so, verse 21, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consume the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Boom, boom, it's all gone. Now that's a sign. Yeah, can you agree? I mean, that was way more than he ever asked for. He's like, just stay here until I bring a blam, and everything blows up, right? He's like, dang, that was awesome. You gotta assume that Gideon's locked. Look at verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, that he was God. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, I've now seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I'm going to die. The Lord said to him, peace be to you. Don't fear. You're not going to die. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it. You're right. The Lord is peace. What a schizophrenic mess. Man, this guy's all over the place. Hey, I just needed this. Let me cook this and let me do this. And then he's like, all right, fine. And then boom, it all blows up. Oh no, now it was God. Now God's going to kill me. I'm not going to kill you. You're right. Everything's peaceful. (laughs) 
something's wrong with you, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why don't we just mellow here, right? Let's just have a conversation, whatever. What I think is so awesome is look how patient God is with this mess of a guy. Oh, we're not even done. So God says, all right. He comes to him later and he says, all right, I got a job for you. Pick it up in verse 25. That night, the Lord said to him, I want you to pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord, your God on the top. Skip to verse 27. So Gideon took men, 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and too afraid of the men in the town to do it by day, he did it by night. First job, he's already afraid. But let me ask you this. What's scarier, going up against a big old army or trying to live as a Christian in your own home? And you're the only believer. His whole family worships another God. His whole family are pagans. He's the only believer. And then you, what you didn't, what we didn't read, and I'll paraphrase, is God not only wanted him to tear down all this expensive stuff that was his dad's and the whole town liked it, but he was to sacrifice a bull on top of it. Why is that a big deal? Because the raiders took all their stuff and food is at a premium. He's now given the Lord a goat. He's now given the Lord a bull. And the bull was a young bull that is used to make other bulls. So he's taking away all kinds of economic power from his dad. And now he tore down one altar, put up a new altar. And if we're going to have any change in our lives, we need to tear down the altars of the enemy and build a new altar and start all over again. Right? but now everybody can see it. And this is the reason why he's nervous. The next morning, I paraphrase, the next morning, they all find out it's him and all the neighbors want him killed for it. It's not until his dad steps forward and is like, hold up, why are we killing my son? Well, because he messed with a god, Baal. What, Baal, if he's really a god, is not strong enough to fight for himself? And they're like, oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. (laughs) Okay, well, stop. So sure enough, the enemies find out there is a revolution coming. So they decide to shut that down. And they gather together with 120,000 soldiers. And they are operating off camels in warfare. That only simply means they have the, the military advantage. They're on something that can move swiftly. That if you're on the ground and they're up above you, they can strike down and get out of the way. So you have an insurmountable army of 120,000 with camels like the sand of the seashore, it says. So look at verse 34. It would have been impossible, but verse 34 happened. What does verse 34 say? But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And so he sounded the trumpet. From fear to power, what was the change? Holy Spirit. Same thing happened at Pentecost and they were in the upper room with a door locked out of fear of the Jews and the Holy Spirit hit and they unlocked the door and they went out and went public. What's the difference between fear and power? The Holy Spirit. What's the difference between fear and power? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes raging upon Gideon. He's like, we can do this. He blows a trumpet and gathers his army together of 32,000 men. That is awesome unless you're fighting 120,000, right? So even his little victory didn't seem like a big deal. So here is nervous guy 
who's like, all right, at least I got an army of 32,000. That's awesome. Look at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. In other words, hey, so if we're really going to do this, I need you to show me another proof. God's like, how many of these are we doing? He's like, all right, just listen, listen to me for a second. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Okay, this is his plan. He's going to lay out a little sheet blankie on the ground. And then he's going to wait in the morning and see if it's wet, but the ground is dry. And, and this is awesome. It says, and it was so when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Now it would be one thing if God only gave him like a little indicator. He's like, uh, is this wet? Is it wet? Honey, feel this. Is it cold or is it wet? Is it okay? No, I think I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure this is wet. I did he literally wrings the thing out and it fills a bowl of water and God's like, is that wet enough for you, buddy? Now that is what he asked for. He was like, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm still doubting. Okay, look at this. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Okay, now let me just test once more with a whole blankie thing. Okay, please let it be dry on the blankie and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. There was dry on the fleece only in the ground there was dew. Once again, the patience of God. Really? Are we doing this again? All right. Oh, what are we doing now? Oh, we're doing another test. All right. This is the God of the Old Testament, folks. Do you see his heart? And and you know, being one of these kids growing up and being afraid, being an adult that has been afraid, man, I put God through the ringer. I'm always worried about something and trying to figure it out in my head. And, and I'm like, oh, God, if you could do this and if you, you could do this. And I'm always coming up with new plans that he could do. He has been so patient with me. So kind to me. He could have just played the whole drill instructor thing. And you know what? Shut up, kid. Man up. What's wrong with you? He didn't. He's been very gentle with me. So Gideon's ready to fight. He's got his 32,000. He has his sign. And he's like, all right, here we go. These are bad odds, but let's do this. Verse two in chapter seven. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. I'm sorry, what? Well, you got too many people because Israel will boast over me saying my own hand has saved me. Kid, I understand you got bad odds with 120 versus 32 grand. All I'm saying is that if you win this war, your guys are going to go on and on and figure out how they were brilliant strategists. I don't need that. I'm not going to get any glory as long as they think they got a shot. So we're going to go ahead and whittle this team down. All right. All right. What are we doing? Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to let everyone go. That's afraid. Oh, okay. I can do that. I mean, I got some pretty tough guys behind me. <laughs> All right. Say, hey, everybody, everybody, listen up. You put down the granola bar. Now, come a little closer. All right, everybody, if you're nervous about this fight, and I understand I'm asking a lot here. I know you're probably even nervous about even walking away, but I just want you to know I'm with you. If you're nervous about fighting, you can go home. 22,000 leave. <laughs> Cricket. Crickets. Right? <laughs> Uh, didn't expect that. Okay, God, I got 10,000 left. This is embarrassing. 
What am I going to do with 10,000 people? Uh, you're going to make them smaller. You still have too many people. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do a really weird test. There's this water and let's see all the guys that go down and they're like drinking down here like this. And there's the guys that are scooping up and they're all paranoid and they're drinking. Okay, sort it out. I want only 300 of them. 300. Yeah, that's what I said. 300 against 120,000. Well, I guess they'll know it's me, huh? Uh, I guess so. Look at verse nine. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise and go down against the camp, meaning let's start this war for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, like you always are, (laughs) right? Go down into the camp with your buddy Pura and you can hear what they say. And afterward, your hand will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Here's how it works. I'll paraphrase. In the middle of the night, ding, ding, ding. They sneak down in there. They get on the edge of the camp. And you know how scary it looks to see a sea of camels and 120,000 warriors. And you're going to go to fight with 300 of them the next day. So his stomach is up in his throat. And he sneaks in there and he's like, I don't know if this is a good idea. And he happens to overhear a guy talking to his buddy over the campfire. Dude, I had the weirdest dream last night. Really? What was it? Well, so we're all camped down here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And all of a sudden, you know what comes rolling out of the hills? A loaf of bread. And it comes in, rolls in, knocks us all over. The guy's like, that is weird. You know what I think it is? I think it's Gideon. I think we're all going to die. Oh, no. What? Why is that how you interpret the dream? Maybe you just ate too much bread. Maybe it's a gluten thing. I don't know. But why are you assuming it means you're going to die? And sure enough, right there, Gideon's like, yeah, awesome. I'm a, I'm a roll of bread. I will take you out, right? And then he gets all pumped up. He goes back to his team. He's like, guys, we're ready to go. Okay, we're going to break into three camps. 100 here, 100 here, 100 here. I need you guys to grab your weaponry. All right, sir, what do you want us to grab? I need you to grab a torch. Yeah, that's a good idea. So we don't trip. That's a good idea. I need you to grab a jar. All right. I'm not sure what we're doing with the jar, but all right, we'll do that. Uh, Well, you're going to cover your torch. Okay. I got it because you're hiding your flashlight. All right. Excellent. And then I need you to grab a ram's horn and a machine gun. Oh, no, no, no. A ram's horn. Like a one of those. Yeah. Okay. At what point do we grab a sword? Whatever, do what I do, do what I do. Here's what we're going to do. We're all going to spread out around them. And right in the middle of midnight when they're switching, one guy's totally tired going to bed. The other guy's just coming on shift. They're all a little bit drowsy. We're going to go around them. And at the same time, we're all going to shatter our jars. The light's going to hit. That's going to freak them out, right? It'll be like a spotlight. And we're all going to blow our trumpets at the same time. And the noise is going to disorient them. And then we're all going to scream for the uh, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon and and then they're all going to totally freak out. And then what happens when they calm down, <laughs> right? At some point do we hack them? <laughs> I don't know. That's just all I got right now. Let's just roll with it. So they decide to go out there. They do the whole thing. Everybody goes crazy. And the Lord and his angels come flying in, confuse everyone, and they all attack each other. And by the time friendly fire is done, there's only 15,000 bad guys left. They call up all the guys they had sent home. They chase them down, slaughter them all, and the land has rest for 40 years. 
weird thing happens at the end. They go up to Gideon. They're like, dude, you're the man. He's like, well, I wouldn't say the man. (laughs) A man, (laughs) maybe. Uh, We want you to be king. No, can't do that. Sorry, that's God. That's God's job. I will take payment, though. (laughs) You're like, wait, what? What did you say? (laughs) Yeah, just all those golden earrings that we took from those dead guys and everything. You just go ahead and throw it in the blankie here. That's that's good. I'm going to make something with it and stuff like that. Wasn't there another guy in the Old Testament that made something out of golden earrings and it was something about God? Oh, that's right. It was Aaron and the golden calf. That went well. He said, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make an ephod. Oh, are you now? What's an ephod? Well, that's a priestly garment where we can find out about God. I'm going to, I'm going to hang that up in our hometown. All right. Oh, by the way, I'm going to have tons of wives and concubines. I'm going to get super wealthy and everything else, but I'm not your king, mind you. I have 70 sons, but I'm not your king, mind you, even though I named my son, his dad is the king anyway. But what I'm saying is, is I'm not, I'm not your king. That's God's job. And all of Israel ends up treating the ephod like an idol and they all move away from God. Okay. So it's like, God can't win, right? So you got the scaredy cat guy. God makes him into a warrior. He then gets arrogant and it all falls apart on the other side. Where's the faithful one? He was so much more useful when he was scared. Hmm. Do you realize that we are coming towards the end of this year of identity? Right? I mean, we're get, this is our last series on it. We're going to be wrapping out the year. And I think that for a lot of us, we may end up going, okay, I got that one. Can we move on? What else? Oh, we're going to have tons of stuff next year. Here's the problem. This is not a one-time, I got it thing. Every day is a decision to relock your identity into the Lord. Every morning is, who am I? Whose am I? And what is he like? Because Gideon finally got it right and then slipped off the other side. If we enter into next year where we're going to be doing explosive things and community change and all these incredible things, if we go do that and God gives us any sort of success, we're going to completely derail from the whole identity thing that we just tried to spend a year locking in. We must remain grounded in who we are. Identity is an everyday question. Who am I? Whose am I? And what is he like? Can I have the prayer team coming up here as we close? Here's who I want to come up for prayer. And obviously you always have freedom to go up for prayer if you have any sort of need. But as we close out, there's one particular group I would like to come up for prayer. And it is this. If during this message, God has stirred in your heart that fear is taking way too much of your life, it's dictating your decisions, it's causing you to doubt everything. If fear has become more important than what God says, I want you to come up for prayer. I don't care if it's fear about a disease. I don't care if it's fear about what other people think, or it's a fear about your future or a fear about a relationship. If fear has stolen from you and you want it back, this prayer team is up here for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask right now that you would 
Send your Holy Spirit in a mighty way. Holy Spirit, you do what only you know how to do. Stir our hearts and let us know what is not all right to stay in our spirit. That you want to get it out so we have more freedom. That we have more strength. That we have more power. So Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would anoint this team that as they listen to the prayer requests, it's like they're ambassadors for the kingdom. It's like everything they hear, you hear, and then they just pray out whatever's on their heart and the fear is diminished and the fear is banished in Jesus name. We come against all fear and anything the enemy is trying to do in bullying through fear in Jesus name. And we say no more, no more fear, no more terror, no more dread, no more worry, no more stress in Jesus name that we are not going to allow that to rule our hearts. So God set us free that we might be all that you want us to be in Jesus name. We pray. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend.